Russell. Okay, all right, all right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, again, my name is Brett Bartlett, and uh, boy, I could stand up here and yammer uh, about a bunch of stuff. I haven't been nervous preaching in a long time, uh, and I, I want to throw up right now. Uh, uh, I have been coming here for a long time, uh, off and on. They have had, this church has had a huge impact on my life and, and ministry going back to the, the early 90s, if you can believe that one. And uh, I just can't tell you what an, uh, a privilege it is to be up here um, and, and how much, in a strange way, I sincerely don't want to be here right now. I'm not joking. Uh, uh, so I'll try and, and stumble through this the best I can. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for investing into the lives of young people. A lot of those young people, uh, as they have a tendency to do, uh, th they got older, and some of them uh, went into ministry, and they went into ministry because of the influence of this church. Uh, and uh, if it were not for First Baptist Church, I can tell you, in, in, in all sincerity of heart, I would not be a preacher today. I would not be in the ministry today were it not for this church. That's, that's the truth. So uh, you don't claim me, but I claim you whether you like it or not. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so I've got a really strange sermon to preach. Uh, I recently went to uh, Malawi, Africa. Um, I went there a year ago with uh, Neil Brown, who, who, who's, who's representing uh, this morning. He's in the house. And so I'm going to hang out with Neil for the next couple days. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I think he's married too, so I'll hang out with her also. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Kim and I are going to be hanging out with uh, Neil and Debbie. We're looking forward to it. But I met him on the Malawi trip with uh, Mark and uh, Palira uh, and the Mulanguzi Community Church uh, last year. I went back again this year. Our church is actually going to invest heavily into a new area over there, so pray for us. We're going to be in Hungary and Malawi, and I'm going to be training pastors over there. I'll be over there two or three times a year, it looks like, uh, for the foreseeable future, Lord willing. Uh, and so I was going to preach at Mulanguzi Community Church this time around, which I did. And while I was there, uh, they wanted me to preach on something that would be easily uh, applicable to their lives. And so I decided to kind of stray from what would be the traditional uh, expository message that this church trained me to preach, uh, lest I be struck with lightning. Uh, <laughs> and I actually did a sort of textual sermon there, uh, and I did it on palm trees, uh, I actually uh, worked up a series of different types of trees that are in that area that they could use because a lot of times they preach outside. And so Mark heard it, and he said, I want you to preach that sermon when you're there. For sure, so I did. And I was explaining it to Jeff, and Jeff says, well, that's the sermon that I want you to preach here. So a sermon that I would never choose to preach here is the stinking sermon that the pastor asked me to preach. <laughs> Man! ticks me off, man, so here I am uh, <laughs> preaching this stupid sermon. So, so Jeff calls me a couple days ago, and he's like, he's like, dude, I just thought of something. It's awesome. Uh, <coughs> and, and I'm like, what? what? What's, so, what's so awesome? Uh, he's like, do you know that this Sunday is Palm Sunday? So you could look like a genius. You could tell them that you tailor-made a palm tree sermon for Palm Sunday. I'm like, yeah, but that's a lie, Jeff. <laughs> that's not true. 
Okay, I lied that I said that's a lie. I would not talk to him that way. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, all joking aside, here it is. And so let's go to the Word of God. And, and uh, actually, we'll open with uh, Mark chapter 8. And I'm going to be reading verses 22 through 30. <clears throat> and he cometh to Bethesda, and they bring a blind man unto him. And besought him to touch him, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he, went, and, and he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. This remarkable and almost perplexing account of Christ's ministry transpires immediately after the much more well-known feeding of the 5,000. Whereas I trust you are aware, Christ observed how that miracles... And free food uh, was a great way to get a crowd. But when he actually started preaching the word of God, they all left. I, I, I was listening to Andy Stanley the other day. I've probably heard him five times in my life. Uh, and, uh, and he was as good as he was the first four. And uh, so I was listening to him, and he was actually using the feeding of the 5,000 as, as a justification for his ministry philosophy. Christ entertained you know, Christ gave out a bunch of food. Christ had awesome music. That's how Christ drew crowds. But, you know, he's leaving out a key detail. The reason Christ drew all of those crowds with that stuff was to show how inane and asinine and superfluous all of those things were. Because as soon as those crowds got there and he actually started preaching the word of God, what'd they all do? They all left. They all left. Every one of them. To the point that it almost frustrated the disciples. You can see the frustration coming off of the page. You know, why do you keep preaching these sermons, man? We work, we work all this time to get to these big crowds, and we do all these cool miracles, and, you know, smacking old ladies on the forehead, and having, you know, free, free coffee cake, and, and, and then you go preach your kick-butt sermon. Like, you know, what are we doing out here? And they drove them all away. Christ said, you guys going to go too? See, the point was not to demonstrate what a good ministry philosophy entertainment is, it's to show you what a bad one it is. See, listen, a man can build a church. The truth of the matter is, that's easy to do. It's easy to build a church. You can build a church that way. You know what? It's easy. You know what's hard to do? Oh man, I feel so sorry for you. That was a bad move. That's okay, go ahead and get it. It's going to drive you crazy. That's okay. I do stuff like that all the time. <laughs> I'll do that while I'm up here. Okay? Um, listen, it's easy to do that. What's hard to do is to preach the word, which is two-thirds negative, right? Reprove, rebuke, those are two things that will drive crowds away. And exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. I mean, if you're a biblical pastor, two-thirds of the things you do are going to be negative, right? You're going to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those, two th those first two things are negative. 
you're going to be negative a lot. You're going to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, not just the doctrines that aren't controversial. You know what you're doing when you do that? You're doing what God asks you to do, and you're letting him build the church. Now, that takes faith. That's hard. A man can build the church. You don't even need to have talent for that. You don't have to have character for that. You don't have to have knowledge of the Bible for that. You don't have to have right doctrine for that. You don't even need to be saved to do that. Right? But man, to do it, to do it the way this church is doing it, you know, that's hard. That's the road less traveled. And it may very well be for this reason. You need to understand something about Jesus Christ. He isn't interested in giving a man truth that doesn't want truth. He isn't interested in chasing people down who don't want to be caught. That's precisely, by the way, how I believe we should interpret passages like, say, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Don't spend your life doing that. Don't waste your ministry. Don't waste your time casting your pearls before swine. This is precisely why, as we know with this church, and I won't bore you with all the details, that Jesus spake in parables. I went to Bible college. I went to the same Bible college as the pastors who, some of the pastors who, who have, have pastored this church, and, uh, and, and I had the same experiences that they had in the same classes taught by, uh, by the exact same professors in some cases. And, and, and at Bible college, they will tell you the exact opposite of what you should actually understand about the Bible, at least at many of them. I'm not anti-Bible college per se or seminary per se. I'm just really, really pro-church. And what they taught me at my Bible college is that a parable was a way that Christ spake uh, so he could take abstract concepts and explain them in a way that's more readily understood by, by the masses. Well, as it turns out, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 13, that Christ spake in parables for the exact opposite reason. There are things that he didn't want people who didn't deserve truth to understand. And so he spake in such a way that only the people who wanted truth could understand it. Now, I, I'm rather fond of a style of language, for instance, that might be a little bit more difficult to understand, so it makes you go home and actually study what the Bible says. So it's not just readily understood by any man jack who walks in and wants to read the Bible. I, I, I kind of think a, a Bible that's written like that is, is kind of cool. It's kind of keeping in spirit with the uh, parables, don't you think? And maybe that's why Psalm 78.2 says that a parable is a dark saying. It's a saying that contains truth, but it's very difficult to discern the truth because God only wants certain things to be known by people who fear him. I believe they're called the secrets of the Lord. So God gets this guy alone where there are no other people around. You need to remember that detail. And there restore this blind man's sight. Where he can see things that other people can't. But it's how he healed him that makes the passage so curious. And this is just one of those times where I'm just going to say from a human standpoint... Jesus does weird stuff. Jesus did weird things. I mean, I have, I, I've been in a lot of debates, but I have never won a debate by drawing in the dirt. That's a weird, that's a weird move. How do you prepare for that guy? You know? <laughs> yeah. What do you do in the debate class when the guy, the guy's main argument is drawing in the dirt, right? That's, that's weird. You know? And, and here, 
this is kind of gross. I mean, I, I, there's only one man that I would ever let rub his dirty spit on my face. Jesus. And I still wouldn't like it. I'd be like, really, Jesus? Really? <laughs> this is nasty. I'm sorry. You're the only person that I would let that happen. And that's what he does. And I want you to think about the elements of this story. So, so there's water, and there's dirt, and there's the scene of spiritual beings, giant spiritual beings, involving touching the body of a man. Now, when you see all of those elements, what's the first thing that you think of in our little mini Strong's Concordance that we have? Those are all the elements of, of the opening chapters of the Bible. A water came up from the midst that, and, and watered the whole ground, and, and God formed man out of the what? So you've got water, and you've got dust, and the water and the dust mixes together, and that makes what kind of a clay? And out of that, God formed man and his body parts out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's eerily similar to that passage, is it not? And what could they see in their unfallen state? Well, Satan comes to Eve and says, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And, and Eve does not say, what, what, what gods? What you, gods, what gods? What are you talking about? I thought there was only one God. You're freaking me out. That's not what she said. She knew exactly what he was talking about. You know what they could see? They could see the spirit world and they could see the physical world. Before the spirit world and the physical world were rent in two into two separate kingdoms because of their fall. And lo and behold, what does this guy see? Say, well, he sees men as trees walking. Now, you've got to keep in mind, God took him away. There was nobody else around. He was isolated. So what was he seeing? Men as trees walking. He's seeing giants. He's seeing giant men in incorporeal form. Now, that's weird. It's so weird that I know that if I camped out on this too long, Jeff would hear about it, and this would be my first and last visit with y'all down here at First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia. Say, well, then why are you telling us that story? I'm telling you that story because I want you to see that Jesus does everything for a reason. He's trying to teach this man a lesson, and by doing so, he's trying to teach us a lesson. And this is why he gets him alone outside the city. It's why he healed them in two steps. Did Jesus need to heal him in two steps? No. Did Jesus even need to do anything? No. Did he even need to say anything? Could he have thought this man's eyes to be healed? Well, did Jesus mess up? Did he overheal his eyes? Oh, you see what? Oh, let me fix that. <laughs> Forgot how powerful I was there. No, he didn't need to do anything. God heals him, and when he does, he flat asks the man, what do you see? And the dude says, I see men as trees walking. Now, if you study your Bible, and we're going to take the more normal path with this, we can go off into weird world with this, okay? There's like an X-Files version of this passage, and then there's like a, there's like a, a more normal version of this passage. Um, I'm going to try the normal passage while I'm here, see what happens, okay? If you study your Bible, you're going to discover that men and trees have a lot in common. To the extent that God likens men to trees, making them not only types, but going so far as to anthropomorphize them in many places in the Bible. 
As a matter of fact, the connections which exist between trees, men, and God, even through general revelation, are so obvious that they're not lost on even unsaved people. I, I, remember, I remember learning this poem in, in school, uh, written by an unsaved woman. I remember learning this poem in school when I was a kid. Sequiota Elementary School, Springfield, Missouri, representing, because I was Sequiota, okay? Around third or fourth grade, I had to memorize this and quote it to the class. It goes like this. <clears throat> I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. The Bible says through general revelation that there are things that you need to study outside of specific revelation. So the only specific revelation that we have that we know is from the Word of God. There is no specific information that we know about God or what He wants for our lives outside of the Word of God. But God did make general revelation. He made creation in such a way that the things that are hard for us to understand are illustrated in general revelation. So God makes Adam and He makes a garden and the Word of God comes down in the form of a body. The voice of God walks with Adam and Adam and, and, and the voice of God, Jesus Christ, walk in the Garden of Eden, and as he gives them his specific revelation, he illustrates those, truth, the, the, those truths with the general revelation of his creation around him. That's the connection that we were intended to have with physical creation. And so God says there's lots of truth in general revelation, much like a parable it can be discerned darkly, but maybe not specifically. Okay, so, for instance, the Bible says to consider the ant. Okay, so God tells you, you want, some, you want some illustrations of the truths of the Bible? Go study ants. Go study flowers. Go, go, go study the way of a man with his maid. Go study marriage. Go study how guys and girls interact with each other when they're forced to live with each other for the rest of their lives. That'd be interesting. You learn some things there. You're in the real school now, ain't you? We can learn things about trees. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is, is when the Philistines decide, this is a good plan, they're going to steal the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, that's a good one, right? So, so they steal the Ark of the Covenant, and what do they do? They put it in the Temple of Dagon, this grotesque, perverted, half-man, half-fish, sexual-themed god of the Philistines. And they put him in the temple of Dagon, which is, by the way, one of the temples of Dagon is where they also put Samson. And so here Dagon is, and the all, almost all of the old statues of Dagon have him going like this, okay? And he's standing up like this, showing his dominance, and they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they put the Ark of the Covenant at his feet. And so what you have is you have Dagon standing in his might and his power, rigid and stiff and strong above the Ark of the Covenant, showing, his, showing how, how mighty he is. And so what happens? They all leave, they come back the next day, and Dagon, 
A man is, is down flat on the ground, worshiping beneath in, in submission and in worship and obedience to the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, that's kind of a coincidence, you know. Hmm. So they lift him back up. They go in the next morning, and you know what they find? <coughs> He's fallen again. But this time when he fell, his head broke off. Sorry, his head broke off. His ear mic flew off. <laughs> both legs fall off. Both arms fall off. And there he is. And this is what the King James English says. And only the what? Only the stump of Dagon was left. Now, why do they say stump? You know, because a human body is built a lot like a tree, isn't it? It's got a trunk, and it's got like these different, you know, weird branches sticking out, and they sort of look like trees. Now, you know, some people are, you know, like Trotter, they've got almost other trunks sticking out <laughs> of their trunk. And some people have skinny, pasty white, red polka dotted twigs, right? But we, we kind of look like trees. Trees, by the way, trees are mostly made of water. So is man. They are designed to bear fruit. So is man. They decline as they get older. So do men. They reproduce after their own kind using seed to do so. So does man. They can be used for two things after they die. Building construction or fire. That's interesting, isn't it? Eh, there's probably nothing to it. That's probably just a coincidence. These Baptist preachers and their wild ideas. <laughs> if you were to take your Strong's Concordance and do a word study on trees, you would find that there are over 31 different kinds of trees mentioned in the Bible. These 31 kinds of trees are mentioned all throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, the Bible opens with a tree that determines the destiny of man. It closes with a tree that determines the destiny of man and has a tree in the middle that determines the destiny of man. Probably just a coincidence. Yeah, there's probably nothing to it. That typology, you've got to watch out for that. You can make anything a type. What a coincidence, though. It's coincidence to me that, 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 we, that Gentiles are, 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 called, are called wild branches that can be engrafted onto the vine. And so what you have is the vine and, and the end of the gospel drama being hung on a tree where if we, by faith, believe in the finished work of the cross and the power of the blood alone to save us, we can be engrafted onto the vine and we can be the vine he can be the vine, and we can be the branches, and we can bear fruit, much fruit that will remain. I'll tell you something else about trees in the Bible that I find fascinating. God tells us that a man is cursed or blessed based on what kind of tree he is. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, 1 through 6. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the what? The law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a what? A tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They're like the wind. They're, they're like the chaff, which the wind driveth away. You know, a tree that's planted by the rivers of water has its root 
in a natural source. It doesn't need to be watered by man. It doesn't need to have the right set of circumstances. It, does, it can be in the middle of the desert, but if it's near an oasis, it's going to be green and it's going to flourish. It's been, limer, it's been liberated from human relationships and physical circumstances being necessary for its peace and its joy and its fruit bearing. That's how a spirit-filled man is. Because the roots of his life are naturally engrafted into a river of life that flows out of him. It is internal, not external. So the question we should be asking ourselves is this. What kind of tree am I in God's sight? Now, in reference to my aforementioned joke that nobody laughed at, by the way, as a matter of fact, I don't even know if anyone saw that it was a joke. That's how good I am at joke-telling. We don't have time to look at all the trees in the Bible this morning. So what I want to do over the... uh, next few minutes that we have is just go over one of the 31 trees. I just want to go over the palm tree, and I just want to look at it devotionally. And what you're going to find about palm trees is that they're both usable and bendable. Let's begin with Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord shewed him a tree. And when he had cast uh, into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance. And there he proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that doth heal th- that healeth thee. And they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. Now, the context is self-evident. Children of Israel had just left Egypt. They had just crossed the Red Sea. God had done unbelievably miraculous things for them to protect them, and yet, even though he has done that, they still begin to murmur, and they still begin to, to, to wonder, and they still begin uh, uh, to, 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 to complain against the Lord, and to complain against leadership, and to blame everything on Moses, and to blame everything on God. And why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here just to die? And they want water, and they're thirsty, and they want their physical needs met, and they're wearied, and they're freaked out. And so what does God do? He brings them to a place where there's water, and there are palm trees. Now, the truth of the matter is, for good reasons or for bad reasons, God's people get wearied, and when they get wearied, they lose faith, and when they lose faith, they get bitter, Mara. There is a place in the body of Christ for some palm trees. And maybe that's the most important truth that I have to say this morning. There is a place in the body of Christ for some palm trees. In, in fact, I think we will soon see that there are times when all of us should be like palm trees. That is to say, God wants to use people that can be refreshing to the weary and comfort those who are hurting and to protect them and to heal them from bitter experiences. But to do so, you're going to have to have the characteristics of a palm. And palm trees are usable. Every part of a palm tree can be used by a man. Every part. You know that palm trees... Their seeds are used to feed pigs. 
pig feed is made from the seeds of palm trees. Well, that doesn't go very well with my passage on, you know, cast not your pearls before swine, but I'm just saying, forget Matthew 7 for a second, and just, that's crazy. You know, and by extension, pigs feed us. We live off palm trees. Men eat palm hearts. Anybody here have a palm heart? I was in Pensacola, Florida. I'm going to mention Pensacola in a second. They serve palm hearts in expensive restaurants in Pensacola, Florida. I had an artichoke heart one time. I haven't had a palm heart. I know in Malawi, Africa, they take the, uh, what are they called? Are they called fronds? Is that what they call the leaves of palm trees? Yeah, a prawn is a shrimp and a frond. Okay, so it's a frond then, okay. They take the fronds of those palm trees, they turn them into brooms, and they make, they make roofs out of them. There's a, a certain kind of, kind of a hipster, bohemian vibe furniture that is made from palm trees. It's actually very expensive. It's called rattan furniture. You can, you, you can get very expensive rattan furniture made from the wood of a palm tree. Rope, hats, shoe polish of all things. Do you know that shoe polish is made, black shoe polish is made from rotten palm tree? And yet, so is dental floss. So you can keep something white or keep something black based on, uh, uh, on palm trees. Dates, coconuts, beetle nuts, box nuts, acai berry. All of that comes from a palm tree. Palm trees can provide shade. Everything about a palm tree, every part of it, can somehow be used to provide aid and comfort for a man. Listen, there is no part of this body, there is no unusable person in this body, you can be used to provide aid and comfort to God's people when they get wearied. There is a way that you can do that if you will just seek it out and find it. You have a ministry at this church. You have a purpose on this planet. You can evangelize in your way. You can disciple in your way. You can comfort feeble arms and feeble hands in your way. You have that ability if you want to be used. But almost every way, not every way, but almost every way that a palm tree brings aid and comfort to a man involves it dying first. So palm trees are usable. And then lastly, I say lastly, and I'm going pretty quick for me, okay? Lastly, palm trees are, are bendable. Now, you got to kind of hang with me on this point. This one's a little odd. So, I said I was going to mention Pensacola. I have daughters. And uh, my eldest daughter, Bailey, uh, is getting ready to, to go to college in, in Pensacola, Florida. Okay? Uh, and so this is big drama in our home. You know, the, my baby is leaving. I used to laugh at parents, you know, crying on graduation day. Oh, where they show the pictures of the kids, you know, when, they're, when they were three, and then they show them their senior year, and, you know, kid, your parents are bawling. And I used to think, you've got to be kidding me. They're not dying. What's the matter with you people? I'm here to tell you, the graduation ceremony is like seven weeks away, and I'm, you know, always getting something caught in my eye. Man, my allergies are really kicking up right now. It's freaking me out. And, and, and I know this is my parent paranoia kicking in, but one of the things that freaks me out about it is, is that she's literally, like, she's going to a place where there are, it seems like every time a major storm or a hurricane touches down, it, it, it's, it's somewhere near Pensacola, Florida. It's somewhere near uh, Greenville, South Carolina, 
are it's somewhere near, uh, 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 I can't think of the, New Orleans, <laughs> having a mental block, New Orleans, every time. It's like, I don't, God really doesn't like those cities. <laughs> a few years ago, the same college, or the same town, rather, that, that, that Bailey's going to, Pensacola, Florida, we had students, kids that I had discipled when I was a youth director years ago, they went to a college there, a different college. I went down to visit them, and it was five days after, I think it was the third, second or third worst hurricane that ever touched down on American soil. And the thing that I noticed about it, it was bizarre. In the area that it touched down, there were no trees. And I, and now listen, I didn't say no branches. The trees were gone. Mobile homes, gone. <laughs> Dogs, gone. Everything got leveled. It, it, it looked like Hiroshima where this thing touched down. I couldn't believe the power of it. There was one thing that was left standing in the whole area. You know what it was? It was palm trees. You want to know why? Because unlike all the other trees in that area, when the winds come and start blowing against all those trees, just like Dagon, those tall, firm, big, round, strong trees that can stand up and be their own man and can take it on the chin. You know what happened to those trees? Man, they, they cracked, they snapped, and they were thrown out to sea. You know what palm trees do? When the winds come in a palm tree, that palm tree gets down and bends. And then when the storm's over, do you know what it does? It rises up again. And its ability to bend when the storms come is what keeps it alive and bearing fruit. I'm telling you guys, you may not be an ecclesiastical superstar and you may not have all the gifts that you have been told you need in order to serve God, but I'm here to tell you, if you're usable and you're bendable, you're going to have a great judgment seat of Christ. weirdest thing I've ever seen. These trunks sticking up. The branches were gone. The fronds were gone. They're just trunks. You go back to Pensacola today to that same area, you know what you're going to see? Those branches are bigger and stronger than ever. And they can bear more fruit than they ever were able to before. See, part of the body dies. And yet, though it's pruned, it grows back. Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word, look at it, and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. You know, the world will tell you that bending your will is a sign of weakness. A teaching that is not only destructive, but patently absurd. You have to bend your will to follow that advice. Listen, I don't care who you are. 
you're going to end up bending your will to something. No matter who you are. This is why all nonconformists dress alike. Right? You go to high school, all the kids that don't want to be like everybody else, they all look the same. Why? Because they're being their own person? No man is his own person. That's a lie. That's why in every college class that you ever take, secular or Christian, they all say at the beginning of the class that they encourage open-mindedness, but if any student takes a position contrary to the professor, they wash them out. So you've got all these open-minded students in schools that take the exact same positions as the professor by the time the class is over. You're not open-minded. You're a bleating sheepling. This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 31 talks about the fashion of this world and how it passes away and another fashion comes in. Uh, this is why I've got a tie that is this thin. They made them like this in the 80s. And I bought a bunch of them and threw them away. I should have kept them. And then the fat tie came in. Then I bought a bunch of fat ties. And then all the young kids started making fun of my expensive fat ties. And after about like the third teenager, I, I'm caving to peer pressure. I caved to teenagers. That's how weak I am. <laughs> so I started buying skinny ties again. Why? Because the teenagers were making fun of how I dress. I'm not my own man. A 14-year-old intimidates me into my shopping habits. <laughs> it's ridiculous. We're not our own person. Romans 6, 13 through 16 says this, Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall, have shall ha not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to him ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? Listen, friend, you're going to yield to somebody. And what you need to do is decide now, to decide now to yield to God. You're either going to bend to his will, to his will and yield your members uh, unto righteousness and have a blessed life or you're going to pretend to do your own thing which is a lie and become the servant of sin and ruin your life it's that simple of a proposition now if you're saved if you have the power of the holy ghost accessible to you you don't have to be the servant of sin but the only way to do that is to bend to the will of god to righteousness to sanctification to holiness but if you're going to claim that your desire is to follow Christ, you better understand this up front. Every part of the Christian life is based on submission. Every part of it. You can't get saved without submission. You can't be discipled without submission. You can't agree to baptism without submission. You can't agree to church discipline without submission. You can't obey church leaders without submission. And when you decide that you're going to do your own thing in life and your own thing in church and your own thing with your body, and stylize it after Christianity. And give it a Christian theme and a Christian flair. Listen, that makes it no less rebellious. As a matter of fact, I submit to you, it makes it worse. Mm -hmm. 
Every part of the Christian life at every step will require sacrifice and humility. And you're going to find that at times it's going to hurt to bend. But listen, it will keep you from breaking. And people who refuse to bend to the submission of God and His Word in a local church, though they stylize it with Christianity, though their words are smoother than butter, though they can make themselves victims, you watch. Because one of these days, you're going to notice that they're gone and they've been blown out to sea because instead of bending, they decided to stand and be firm because they said, I will not be moved. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And Paul made a good decision with this thorn in the flesh. He said he would rather trust the loving discipline of the Father than his own way and his own will and the delights of the world. Three times, three times Paul asked God to remove this thorn in his flesh. And God told him, no. I want that in your life. You know, the thing about a palm tree is, if there's no storm, it doesn't matter that it can bend. Right? It's the storms that cause us to bend. So God says, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul said, well, Lord, that's not what I want, but if it's your will, then I'm going to glory in it. Now, did you notice that? I'm going to glory in it. He didn't say I'm going to put up with it. He didn't say, I'll suffer it. He didn't say that I'll endure it and talk about it all the time so everybody knows what I have to endure. That's not what he said. Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh one time in his epistles. Does he ever complain about it again? No. It hounded him every day of his life. He only mentioned it one time, and that was for God to tell him to stop mentioning it because God wants it there. So he said, I will glory in my infirmities. Why? Because when I'm weak, then am I strong. Because he that has suffered hath ceased from sin. Because a Christian is a living sacrifice who allows his body to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in his flesh for his body's sake. And therefore, Paul says, we rejoice in the suffering of the Lord. When people looked at the Apostle Paul, listen, they didn't think he was great. There's two types of preachers. Well, actually, there's three. There's the first kind is those who can't preach. Okay? And then there's two other kinds. The one, and, and, and these are the two kinds that fall under the category of those who can preach. There's the kind of preacher that, that when you listen to him preach and he walks away, you say to yourself, Wow, that guy is amazing. Right? And man, I've had preachers like that in my life. But it, it doesn't matter how much you listen to those dudes. They don't seem to have a lasting effect. You know? And then there's the other kind of preacher that when he gets down and he's done and you walk away, you get in your car and you look at your wife and you say, Wow word of God is amazing. And those are the preachers that have changed my life. You know, Paul walks in short, bald, 
some physical infirmity that he completely debilitates him. I guarantee you the teenagers were laughing at him when he walked into the conference. Teenagers were snickering. Women were looking around like, what in the world? Who is this guy? It's a little strange. And dudes were like, man, this is the guy. This is the man. This is the great Apostle Paul. And people were snickering and people were laughing and people were wondering. And then Paul opened his mouth. And you know what he did? He began to preach the word of God and people shut up. They thought, man, what a great God. And just like when a mighty storm comes through and blows down all the trees, people don't say, wow, look how mighty those trees are. Just like even when the palm tree is bending and the wind is pushing that palm tree down to the ground in submission and in, in, in obedience and obedience to the power of that storm, you don't say, wow, look what a tremendous, powerful palm tree that is. When the storm comes in and blows every tree out to sea and blows the branches off of the palm trees and pushes their face down to the dirt, everybody says, wow, look at the power of that storm. Now listen, there's one more thing about palm trees I think you need to understand and we'll close. A palm tree doesn't have much depth. Now I know you can cross-reference that idea and it's not good that you don't have depth and in a sense that's true but we're not talking about spiritual depth here you don't have to have a lot of physical depth as long as you are usable for God and bendable to God so long as you are faithful in sacrificing your will and body to Christ and are available to aid and comfort the weary and proclaim the gospel with every part of your life now, Ezekiel, we won't read all of Ezekiel 40 and 41. We don't have time, and I do want to get you out of here. But, you know, Ezekiel 40 and 41 is a fascinating passage because it's describing the temple of God. It's not describing Solomon's temple. It's not describing Herod's temple. It's describing the temple that will be built in the millennial reign of Christ. And it's interesting, the details that the author goes in and describing what this temple will look like in the millennium. See if you can kind of pick up what I'm laying down in some of these passages. Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 16, And there were narrow windows in the little chambers, and to their posts within the gate, and round about, likewise to the arches, and windows were round about and inward, and upon each post were what? Well, now there's a kick in the head. Palm trees. Palm trees in the temple in the millennium carved into the windowsills and into the posts everywhere you look. Ezekiel 40, 22, and their windows and their arches and their palm trees were after the measure of the gate that looketh toward the east. Ezekiel 40, 26, and there were seven steps to go up to it. The arches thereof were before them and it had palm trees, one on this side and the other on that side upon the posts thereof. Ezekiel 40, 34, and the arches thereof were toward the outer court, and palm trees were upon the post thereof, on this side and on that side, and the going up to it had eight steps. Ezekiel 41, 18, and it was made with cherubims and palm trees, so that the palm tree was between a cherub and a cherub, and every cherub had two faces. 
Ezekiel 41, 19, so that the face of a man was toward the palm tree on one side and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. It was made through all the house round about. Ezekiel 41, 25, and there were made on them on the doors of the temple cherubims and palm trees like as it were upon the walls and there were thick planks upon the face and the porch without. Now some of you here today may not think you're much of a Bible scholar. Maybe the Lord didn't gift you with tremendous looks and a radiant personality. I mean, very few people have it all. (laughs) Right? Don't let me be your standard. You'll never be, you'll never be happy. (laughs) Some of us here may not be very effective speakers our debaters, our teachers, our preachers, or any of that stuff that we think we need to serve the Lord. Well, listen, friend, I've got some encouraging news for all of us today. Everyone here can decide to have the greatest ability. And do you know what the greatest ability is? The greatest ability is dependability. And that's why, that's why, you know, my wife and I, we're about to move into a new home. We're, we're excited about that because, well, I'm carnal and I like physical stuff, okay? So pray for me on that, you know, little issue I have with God. He's not too happy with me on it sometimes. So we're about to move into a new house and we want it all to be just right, you know? And so we're, we're thinking about investing some money into this, in this chandelier. Now, where we're putting this chandelier is in an entryway where there's tons of light and a bunch of windows, and there's all kinds of other electric lights everywhere at night. In other words, there's absolutely, you know, there's only one reason we're buying a chandelier, because it looks cool. And and so when people come over, we want to say, yeah, this is our home, beautiful home, thank you. (laughs) Whatever. I don't care. By the way, did you see our, what do you think of a chandelier? It's just, it's a show-off. Let's just face it. We're, we're spending a preposterous amount of money on a big, gaudy, audacious light that we don't need day or night. We don't need a chandelier. Who needs a chandelier? What, what, I mean, what, what are we, the Habsburgs or something? What do you, you, you don't need a chandelier in your house. Stupid. I'm still doing it, but it's Stupid. That's the least important light in the house. That house is for show. That house is to impress, that that chandelier is to impress people. That light, that light is is to make some kind of an artistic statement. Yeah, it's a little bit Art Nouveau with kind of a modern flair. (laughs) Art Nouveau. Art Nouveau. Men shouldn't say Art Nouveau. (laughs) That should never come out of a man's mouth. Only women should say Art Nouveau, and only the weird ones. <laughs> you know what the most important light in your house is? It's that exposed light bulb in that back hall when you go to the bathroom at night. You know, you wake up at 3 a.m., and nature's calling, and you're in a hurry, and it's dark, and you're stumbling around, and you've got to have a light. You turn that light on so when you're going to the toilet, you don't bump your head. That light that nobody ever sees that costs $1.95 at Kmart, that light, 
That light is usable. That light has a purpose. That light is a light that you need. The most important light in your house is not the chandelier. It's the back hall light. And you know what God's looking for? He's not looking for chandeliers. He doesn't need them. He needs some back hall lights that are dependable when you need it and the lights are out. You know what the judgment seat of Christ is all about, folks? Mark Trotter just came and did a conference, a holiness conference at our church last week. And it was on the judgment seat of Christ. You know what the judgment seat of Christ is all about? It's about you gaining a glorious entrance into the millennial reign of Christ so you can be there to glorify him because you cared about his glory on earth now so he will care about your ability to glorify him on earth later. That's what it's about. And you know, in Christ's earthly ministry, he gave us a type of what we now understand to be the second coming. It was his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on the foal of an ass, with all the people shouting what? <clears throat> Hosanna! Hosanna! Glory to God! And do you know what they were laying down before him as he rode in? Do you know what prepared the way for Christ to enter into Jerusalem and receive his glory? Do you know what they laid down in front of him? The broken branches of palm trees paved the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now listen, Jesus is coming back, friend. And he's going to return on a white, fiery spirit horse in glory and majesty with a name written on his thigh and bodily and physically conquer and rule this planet for a thousand years from a throne in Jerusalem. A time explained by the great prophet Isaiah like this. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return void unto me or, or unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And listen, all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, most people today don't realize that a storm is coming. And they have stiffened their necks like an oak against the Spirit of God. And they have said, I'm not bending. But one day, one day, every tree will bend to Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will come a day when on this planet, when His, His will will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. And look at it. All the trees of the field will clap their hands all the trees will say, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God. And they will recognize Christ's right to rule and to reign. Everyone. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the King of Israel. His name is Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then will all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and the power of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever, and ever, ruling from a throne that has been from everlasting. And you know what? In that day, in that time, when that happens, there will be a temple. 
A temple surrounding that throne and surrounding that throne, a city and the whole world will come into that city to eat of a tree bearing 12 manner of fruit and to that temple to praise Jesus Christ. And in Ezekiel chapter 40 and 41, the Lord gives us a hint as to who among us here this morning will be in that number standing with him when he receives glory on that day. It will be those who use this life to purchase for themselves gold for the fire, who, like the blind man of Mark 8, had their eyes anointed with eye salve so that they could see this world as God sees it, so that they can see their lives now the way they will see it when they stand at the judgment seat of Christ. For in that day and in that kingdom, in that temple, around that throne, will not stand the theologians or the ecclesiastical celebrities or the chandeliers but it will be those who gave every part of their life and body to serve the Lord regardless of limelight and pomp and circumstance. It will be those who allowed themselves to refresh the weary and encourage the body of Christ to reap a harvest of never-dying souls by boldly proclaiming the gospel. It will be those who yielded their bodies as instruments of righteousness unto God and their wills to the mysterious purposes of suffering for His glory. It will be those who are usable and bendable. Yes, folks, the ones who will stand with the Lord in His kingdom on that day will be palm trees standing around every window and every step and every post and every wall and every column where Jesus Christ receives glory on this planet when he gets the glory that he deserves. So again, folks, I think that you gotta be asking yourself, what kind of tree am I in God's sight?